Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the time that we can gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus, to bring you praise and to worship you and express our love and to do so together as a family and to lift our voices with one another in, in great harmony. And it reminds me of the joy that will be ours when billions of creatures stand before your throne and sing your praises. But for now, this is ours, and we thank you that you're present with us. Now, Lord, we extend our worship of you by the careful attention to the proclamation of your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would inhabit the speaker and the hearer, that you would change us by our encounter with truth, that you'd make us think clearly and newly, and then that we would leave here uh, refreshed, encouraged, and edified. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In 1949, George Orwell wrote a uh, seminal political satire of the book 1984, which most of you are familiar with. It's a, he writes about this nightmarish world that is inescapably under the oppressive control of a tyrannical totalitarian government. At the head of this government is a... Uh, a dictator who's known as Big Brother. Big Brother watches over every minute detail of everybody's life. There's this constant omnipresent surveillance technology which is watching and recording everything you do. And fear is instilled to all of the people through this ubiquitous propaganda, these posters that are plastered up everywhere. And the posters say, Big Brother is watching you. Now, understandably, the idea of having somebody watch over you can be quite unsettling. Uh, people don't like having somebody watching over us. It's, it can be either patronizing, like when you hire a babysitter to watch a teenager, or it can be you know, just downright creepy, like if you find out that somebody's been taking pictures of you and he's got this big collection of photographs about you. However, from another perspective, having Big Brother watching over you could be uh, something that is really comforting, something that offers great security. Now, imagine you know, a kid that gets beat up by a bully in school, and his Big Brother comes, and he says, I'll be watching over you this week. Nothing will happen to you while I'm on watch. And that would be very comforting. That would give you a sense of security uh, about having Big Brother watching. Now, your view of church government falls into one of those two camps. It either falls into the sentiment of fear or comfort. And which of those reactions you have is probably determined by the experience that you've had with churches in the past. Some of you have had uh, churches where you were under the wise governance of, of good elders, and some of you have been burned by the sinful abuse of church leaderships. And so your understanding of New Testament leadership is going to be affected by your experience. It'll also be affected by what you believe to be the right form of church government. And by the way, it is having bad elders that is the number one reason why believers say they don't go to church. They've, they've been burned by the, the, those leading the church. However, the converse is equally true, that the healthiest, strongest churches are those that have strong, healthy leadership. 
Ultimately, we have to come to terms with what the Bible has to say about good leadership because it's God's flock, and God determines how his flock is going to be governed. He, he knows what's best for his flock. He outlines the uh, requisite qualifications for elders. He supplies their, their job description. He, he limits their authority. Um, he is the one who places certain men in leadership of the church. Now, it's been probably 20 or 25 years ago, but I remember when pastors used to exchange business cards, and the business card would tell you the guy's name and something of contact information about them. My business card said my name, and it said, you know, the Bible verse, we must have faith, hope, courage, and lunch together sometime, and that's, that was my business card. Some of you may have that card. <laughs> but, you know, other business cards can, can tell you a lot about what that man thinks about his position or what his church thinks about church, uh, the, the authority, the governance of, of elders in the church. You know, if you got a business card that said regional bishop of the North Olympic Peninsula, you know, it would tell you that their church is rather rigid. It has a hierarchy that's rather formed, and it is geographically associated. And you come to some um, definition about that, that man and his church. And suppose this guy had a whole bunch of interesting prefixes before his name. You know, like, like the most reverend reverend, the high holy apostle, and then the guy's name. Well, then you would come to some conclusion about what this guy thinks about his position in the church or perhaps what he wants the church to think of him. Or say you get a card that says the, the anointed prophet and high priest of the flaming Old Testament covenant ministries well, then you'd have another idea about what that church is like, and probably you don't want to go there, but you, you get the idea. And then there's some churches that, you know, they create a, a title for every single position and, and thing in the church. There's, there's the pastor of media outreach, and there's the pastor of janitorial science, and there's the, there's the assistant pastor of, uh, of parking solutions, Dave. There, there's the, the chairman of angelic visitations. There's the associate pastor of light and sound. And so we give these guys these, these, these titles um, which elevate them somehow that they are above and superlative to the rest of us. My point is, although you know I'm just being silly, but the point is, look how far we've come since the Reformation. When the reformers wanted to do away with these high titles of church and do away with the title of priest altogether and instead substitute the title pastor only, which just means shepherd. It doesn't, it's not an exalted title. It's like goat herder. It's not something you, you, you exalt within the name of goat herder or cowboy, having been one. <laughs> any rate, remember the... And there's nothing new about this. Jesus rebuked the spiritual leaders of Israel because they liked the title, they liked the position, and they liked the preeminence that their title gave them. Jesus said about these guys, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. So we do have, however, titles in the New Testament for those who are leaders in the church. And there are three primary terms or titles that leaders of the church have been given. And each one of these 
terms tells us something about the function of the leaders in the church and the, the position of being a servant leader, not a Lord leader over the church. Now, the first term we come to is, is the term elder, and that term is presbuteros. And you might recognize it from the, the, the Presbyterian church. It just means a church that is governed, ruled by elders. So the, the presbuteros, the, the elder, uh, is someone who has... Um, spiritual maturity uh, and seniority. It doesn't necessarily, it can, but it doesn't necessarily refer to advanced age. Because remember, uh, Paul writes to young Timothy, and uh, he tells him, let no one despise you because of your youth. So you can be an elder and not be old. Um, typically, that's, it, it is older men, but the concept of being an elder, a presbyteros, has more to do with maturity. And that fits pretty well with what Paul tells us are the qualifications for the elder. All these things have to do with being spiritually mature. So he stip stipulates this, this list of, of uh, elder qualifications. There's a couple lists of them. This one's from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Mm. Therefore, an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So again, the idea of presbuteros, elder, just means someone who has... Uh, who is spiritually mature. The second term that we come to in the New Testament for the leader of the church is the term episkopos. And again, you may recognize that from episcopal. Again, this is a church government that is led by one man who's over other men who's over other men, kind of like the, 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 the Catholic church is organized. You have a, the grand poobah at the top, and then you have the, the lesser poobahs underneath them, and <laughs> the headwater buffaloes underneath them, and, and so forth down but it is, a, it is a biblical term, and the term episkopos simply means overseer, one who rules over or is responsible for a group. That's why you have the idea of an episcopal bishop being over other groups. So he he's, has a spiritual oversight, and an oversight is the key here. Hebrews 13-ish uh, um, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. This term, keeping watch, means to stay awake, that you're, you don't fall asleep at the helm. The overseer is the watcher. He, he stays alert because he's guiding and he's protecting and he's leading uh, the flock. Um, spiritual authority in the church should not be like secular authority in the world. Jesus said... <clears throat> You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course, Jesus modeled that kind of servant leadership, didn't he? Remember, towards the, the end of his life, he, he, the disciples are gathered together in the upper room 
Nobody wants to be the servant. Jesus takes off his outer robe and he wraps on the towel of a slave and he takes on the, the, the most disgusting job the, the lowest slave is responsible to do, wash their stinking feet. And what does he tell them? He tells them, if you want to be a leader in the church, this is the example that you have to have. So in other words, we're saying that men of the cloth need to be first and foremost men of the washcloth. They need to be servants, not not the, the grand poobah. Now, the third term for leader of the church is the term we get from pastor, poimen. And it's, again, it just simply means a shepherd. It's not a high term, it's a lowly term. And we see that this was the favorite term that Jesus used for himself, that he was the good shepherd. And there's a lot of analogies how the, the leader, the pastor, is to be the shepherd of the church, the shepherd's first of all, responsible for, for feeding the sheep. And so he, he, he gives the sheep their, their feed in time. He's also the guided, the guider, the... Feeder. No, no, I'm looking for something that goes with guide. <laughs> he, he guides his sheep into uh, green pastures. He, he's, he's gathering the flock. He's moving them along. But another aspect of being the shepherd was to be the guardian of the sheep. The, the pastor not only has to feed the sheep and guide the sheep, he also has to guard the sheep because there's wolves trying to get into the flock. And so the pastor, the poimen, has to be responsible to be watchful that he is guarding the sheep from the wolves and that he's and he's guarding them against false teachers and, and dangerous doctrines which can ravage the church. Now that's the background for church leadership that we find in the New Testament, those who are watching over us in the church. But the question that we want to examine today is not who are our leaders, the question is what should our response be in the church to having Big Brother watching over us? So with that in mind, please take your Bible and turn with me where we left off last week to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Now as we noted before, uh, Paul was only in Thessalonica for a, a few months at most. But he did a good job of training them and equipping them with the time that they had. And Paul was concerned because he had to leave before he felt the job was done. He sent Timothy back up to Thessalonica to figure out how are things going back there? Timothy comes back and he reports to Paul things are going well, but they have these issues and these questions. And so the whole book is written in response to the issues and the questions that Timothy has brought back um, from Thessalonica to Paul. And certainly they want to know stuff. They want to know about the second coming. Paul had told them that Jesus was coming soon. They want to know what are we looking for? You know, how soon is he coming? They want to know some timeline. They want to know some evidences, things to watch for. They want to know, because they're expecting his soon return, they want to know about their friends who died before Jesus comes back. If somebody dies before Jesus comes, do they miss out on um, the resurrection? Do they miss out, on, miss out on, on Jesus? And so they have these questions that, that, that they want Paul to answer. So Paul is writing this letter to answer their questions, and he's telling them not just the answer to their questions, he's telling them what they need to know to function as a church and what they should be doing right now with this urgent expectation that Christ is coming, and he's coming soon. How do we live in the light of Jesus' soon return? Coincidentally, that is also what we want to know. How do we live our lives, individually and as a church, 
in light of the fact that you're going to die and you're going to meet Jesus or he's going to come and you're going to meet Jesus. How do we live our life now with that certainty? Now, in the, in the Bible, there's all kinds of metaphors about what the church is like. And if you look at any of these metaphors, you have the body, the, the bride, the, the building, the temple, uh, the family. All of these metaphors have to deal with the fact that there is one thing with many parts, right? There's not many brides, many bodies, many families, many buildings, many temples. There's one family, there's one building, one body. And so the whole point of that is, if we're going to be a church, there's going to have to be this unity with, with this diversity. So, uh, and the, the illustration that Paul is using here is that of a family. So we find that this last half of Thessalonians chapter 5 has to do with this metaphor of the church being a family, that we're all together in this. We're brothers and sisters. We have one Lord. We have one Savior. We have one God who is our Father. We are all his sons and his daughters. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters with one another. That's the analogy, the metaphor that Paul is trying to, to bring home here, that, that that uh, we are to, uh, let's see, let's back up in the text here. Let's, verses, chapter 4, verse 9, that we're to love each other. Chapter 4, verse 18, that we're to comfort one another. Chapter 5, 11, that we're to encourage one another and build one another up. See, this has to do with the imagery of the family, that the church is a family, that we have this anotherness that's, that's part of being members of the church. Now he takes this analogy up, and he's trying to break it into three essential aspects. The first two we'll cover today. The third one we'll cover next week. The first aspect from chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, has to do with how the church relates elders to the congregation. The second aspect, 14 and 15, has to do with how the church relates to each other in this family of faith. And then the third aspect that we're going to deal with next week from 16 on to 28, 27, how many verses are there? 28, I think. Okay. Has to deal with how the church relates with God. So it kind of, the, the three break into two nice groups, and we're going to cover the third one next week, and how the church um, relates to the, the word of God and how it evokes the worship of God. So, uh, again, verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So he tells us six things, three from the aspect of the elders, three from the aspect of the church. Um, the elders, um, you are to respect esteem, and love the elders who lead, labor, and admonish the church. So that those six things divided into three, two groups of three. So how, and the question that we want to know first is how we, as a church, are to relate to our elders. And again, he's not talking about how the church relates to him as the church founder or pastor or evangelist or whatever. He's talking about how the church of Thessalonica relates to those whom have been placed in authority over them who were them, how they, how they should interact with their elders. And again, I 
although we've just discussed the, the three different terms that New Testament uses for church leadership, the, none of these terms are found in the text here. There's no um, use of the word elder, overseer, or pastor. But those are the men that we should be thinking about because he tells us those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That's who he's talking about even though he doesn't use those terms. Now the first thing he talks about is these elders labor among you. Uh, being an elder is hard work. And the, the word he uses for labor doesn't mean just doing a job. This is hard work. This is work that, that causes that uh, causes sweat and toil. And so he uses that same word when he talks about the farmer who plants his field and, and reaps the harvest. He's working up a sweat. It's difficult work. And he uses the analogy of a, of a soldier who's, whose job is difficult and he's working at it. Or, or an athlete who strives to do his very best to win the prize. So we're not talking about just a job to do. We're talking about toil, which is involved with doing the work. Done correctly, church eldership, church leadership is hard work. Unfortunately, it can also be a place for a lazy guy to hang out and hide. You can be a pastor and get away with just about anything because nobody knows what you're doing. <laughs> and a lot of guys get jobs as pastors for that reason. So they can get a paycheck and they, don't, they can just do the minimal amount of work and still get, get by with it. But that's not Paul's vision here for eldership, it is, his, his job is that it, it, this is a job which requires a lot of toil. And then the second term he says is these guys work over you, they're over you. Now we shouldn't think of this in terms of being harsh authoritarianism. There's a sense in which sometimes the person that's, that's over you has to uh, confront, but sometimes he confronts like, like an, an older brother, that he loves you, that he cares for you, um, but that the confrontation is for your good, not to cause you to conform or to manipulate you. And the church leaders are to actively to guide and, and to shepherd their congregation. Um, he, Paul uses the language uh, in uh, Ephesians uh, 20, 28, you know, watch, he says, uh, uh, care for the church of God, watch over the, the church that God's placed you over. And so, you know, obviously, there's, there's bad examples of leadership. We're, we're all painfully aware of that. Either we've been burned by bad church leadership or bad government, and so we have a, an essential distrust of them, or we've heard of, and we're glad we haven't been burned by bad leadership. And the church has always vacillated between extremes, two extremes of, of church governance. There's clericism, clericism, and there's anti-clericism. And the clericism, like the Catholic Church, where, where all of the authority and power and all the business of the church rested in this one man. And I'm not pointing my finger at the Catholics right now, I'm actually pointing my finger at evangelical churches today who have this one man who's kind of the superstar. Some of them even call themselves super apostles and super prophets. I'm no kidding, because their prophecies and their apostleship is higher than that of Paul and the others. So they, these, these superstars, they become untouchable. And, and people revere them, they hold them up on pedestals. And all of the power 
and authority, the decision-making is in that cleric, and the rest of the congregation is just those who are sat on, literally. So that's, a, the, that's the first error, this clericism, clericism of, of the church. The other extreme uh, is, is a response to that is anti-clericism, and that is that we don't need any, we don't need those stinking sheriffs. We don't need a guy in charge. You know, we're, and you take the analogy of, of the body. You know, Paul uses the analogy of the body. and says, well, you know, we all have an essential function. There are different functions, you know, the foot, hand, eye, whatever. I have a different function, but I don't need uh, somebody in charge of me telling me how to do my job, and so let's get rid of anything that smacks of, of being a pastor or being a church leader. The church is better off without someone. You know, the problem with that is that that's not how God set up the church. God set up the church as his sheepfold, him being the head shepherd, and he places under shepherds. That's how he wants the church led. He gives those under shepherds authority and responsibility to lead the church. So we have to determine what, what God wants. And the Thessalonians, Thessalonians realized that. I mean, Luke tells us at least two guys who were leaders in the church there, uh, Aristarchus and Segundus, uh, by name. All right, so the next word that we need to look at is that the church leaders are to admonish. They're to admonish us, and the, and the word here is uh, nuthateo. Yeah, that's it, nuthateo. And nuthateo, it means, it can mean to warn or, or give caution to someone, but what it literally means is put in mind. Again, when, a, when an elder comes to confront you, sometimes it does require confrontation, but it shouldn't be confrontation as in getting in your face and telling you to, to get things right. It should rather be to put in mind those things that you already know that's found in scripture, and you need to get your life in line with, with what the scripture is. He's, so he comes with this possibly confrontation. You need to, to line up with the word of God. But the, the confrontation comes with this sense of big brotherly love, you know, that it is, it is it's kind, it is full of care, but it also carries weight and authority. Um, Elders are, are here to tell us this is what the Word of God says, this is how you should live your life, or this is what you, should, what you should stop doing because the Word of God declare it, not because this is what you need to do in order to fit in at our church. So they, they do confront when it's necessary. But most of all, they're, they're there to hold up the gospel to us and to say, does, does your life conform to the gospel, and their message should always point to the cross. It should always be aiming at that, not aiming at conformity in the church, but, but pointing us to the cross of Christ. Now, these verses tell us a lot about the, the roles of church leaders, but again, that's not Paul's main point here. Paul's main, main point is not what do church leaders do. His main point is why you should treat them in whatever way we're going to next, right? That's his point. His, his point is, is not to exhort the leaders, it's to exhort the church members. And what does he tell us to do? He says you are to respect, you are to esteem, and you are to love your church leaders. Apparently, 
I'm guessing, there's been some issue in the church in Thessalonica in which they made a stand and there was some pushback. People didn't like what these leaders had, had to say. And so what does Paul say? He outlines what church leaders do. He reminds them why church leaders ought to be treated this way. And then he calls the congregation to show due regard for what reason? Because the Lord has put them there. They're there by God's appointment, not by your election. Now, our Western culture doesn't like the idea that we should obey or we should do something that we're told. I mean, we're, it, we don't trust authority. We don't trust authority whether it's political authority or whether it's police authority or whether it's pastoral authority. We don't trust authority. And with good reason, because there's been an abundance of examples in each one of these categories of the misuse of authority, both in government and in church. And so we are weary and not without cause. And so when Paul talks about those whom the Lord has placed over you, we kind of cringe at that. We, we're resistant to the idea. And um, Paul is telling us that, that our author, their authority is that which has been given to them by God. Now, they, operating within that sphere that, that uh, we are to obey our leaders whom God has placed over us, the opposite of that is also true because we, they, God has placed them over us only in a certain sphere, only in a certain uh, range. They don't have authority to tell you stuff that, outside of, of religion, for instance. And, they, and, and then frankly, there are a lot of cases when the leadership of the church has been wrong and, and things go wrong. Even the best, most dedicated church leaders are, are fallible and, and Occasions they may overstretch their authority. They may demand of the church more than what God's word demands. But we should remember that whatever authority that they have comes to the authority which is delegated to them by the Lord. And therefore, if it's in line with the Bible, we need to comply with it. That means also that if it's not in line with the Bible, we should challenge them. We should question whether the decisions they've made are biblical decisions. And if we have problems with that, we should bring it to their attention, to the attention of the other elders, too. We're told to not only respect our elders, we're told to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Okay, well, that means that we acknowledge the fact that it is work. We acknowledge that they're doing, uh, uh, that there's a, a heavy load of labor upon them. We, we value them because of the work that they do. We, we pray for them. We tell them that we're praying for them. We show up at meetings and we listen carefully to their, their teaching. We invite them to come over. We show them respect and esteem um, because that brings as much benefit to the church as it does to the church's leaders, to the church's ministers. Elders are to exercise authority and church members must submit to that authority Sometimes that means that we as a congregation need to cheerfully accept decisions that are not fully understood because we understand at least that the elders have been involved in praying about this and looking at the word of God. And though we don't have all the information, we trust their spiritual judgment 
according to the scriptures. And again, undoubtedly, there's going to be occasions when elders make mistakes. And if they choose to take a path which is unscriptural, it's your responsibility to leave the church. If the elders are not scriptural and you can't trust their leadership, go someplace else where you can trust the leadership of the church. But it should be the norm of God's people that we submit respectfully and and respond to the authority that God's placed over the church and we are obedient to his word. I, I am repeatedly astonished by church members that elect spiritual men of, of good judgment and good quality to serve as their leaders and then jump to the worst possible conclusion about these men, uh, these same men, who have been making decisions after hours of, of, of prayerful and, and scriptural deliberation. And these are the guys that Paul is writing to, and he tells them that this kind of unruliness in, in the church should, should not happen, and he tells them to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and esteem them very highly in, the, in love because of the work they do. This esteem very highly has two prefixes to it. Hyper or hooper ek pariso. Hyper, you understand that, from super ek. So it, it's, a, it's a hyperbolic adverb is what it is. It's, it's two, with two prefixes to it. So he's saying, you need to have super much preciousness. That's what it literally translates to. Super much, hyper ek paruso. Super much preciousness. That's how you ought to value the, the elders, you, this highest form of, of, of compassion possible towards the elders. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 14. <clears throat> and we urge you, brothers, again, now he's not talking to the elders any longer. He's talking to you, the family, the church, brothers, brothers and sisters. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So we've pivoted here from the responsibilities of the elders now to the whole church, each, each one of us. And in these verses, it's interesting that there's not one exhortation, one command that is given that you can do on your own. Every one of these commands requires you to be doing it with somebody else, with other people in the church. Because we need each other if we're going to make progress. It requires us to relate to other people. You, you cannot grow in grace. You cannot become more mature in Christ without one another. We need each other if we're going to make progress here. We can't grow into maturity apart from one another because so much of our growth involves our interaction, our relationship with one another. It involves like, you know, the heartbreak of, of being let down and having to forgive someone or the difficulty of having to walk alongside a friend who's going through an enormous challenge or a heavy burden in his life. It's the, it's the give and take of, of normal life where we have to defer to one another and, and serve each other and bear with one another. And that's all the dynamics of living with each other as a family. In verse 14, Paul outlines three kinds of Christian brothers, sisters, and 
problems that require the attention of the family here. And in some cases, it requires the loving, watchful care of the big brother, in which case you are the big brother to your siblings. The first is to admonish the idol. The word idol is a military term. It means literally to be out of step with the other soldiers. Uh, we, of course, we use it to mean that you're, you're not doing anything. That's not technically the, the sense here. But the command here is to identify these idol and to admonish them. Now, I, I'm preaching to the choir. I know that. Most of you, at least most of you who are members of the church, are engaged in ministry in one form or another. And, and so I'm, you, you can believe, breathe in a collective sigh of relief. I'm not talking about you. There's, because you recognize that the way that you serve the Lord is to serve his church. I don't mean the institution. I mean your family, your church family. You serve the Lord by serving the church family. And, and you, most of you are engaged in some way of doing that. But others, frankly, are, are religious consumers. They don't come to church to serve the Lord. They come to church because they want to have their religious consumer needs met. And if they don't feel adequately met with their consumer needs, they're going to go to the next church where they can feel that their consumer needs are identified. So You know where I'm going with that? Those are the idol. And you, brothers and sisters, need to identify the idol and admonish them, correct them. That, by admonish, that doesn't mean that you have the right to get in their face and tell them off. But it does mean that as a bigger brother, you come alongside them with the word of the Lord, and you say, this is, what the word, this is what God's word says, and you need to be in compliance with it. But you need to be careful, too, in your process of doing the admonishment that you do know what the word of God says. So spend some time knowing what it requires before you start shooting your mouth off in somebody else's face. Now, second, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. And the faint-hearted could be those who are easily discouraged. Might mean people who are constitutionally timid, uh, perhaps both. But notice that in this case, he does not say you need to admonish those who are faint-hearted. You don't get in their face and tell them to square up. What do you do instead? You encourage the faint-hearted. You gently encourage them. You, you give them reasons. You say, I, I believe in you. You can make a change. And the third, he tells us to help the weak could, the word could mean physically weak, could mean spiritually weak. I wonder if he's not referring back to chapter 4, uh, right at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, verses 3 through 8, when he talks about the, the, those that are sexually immoral, that they're tempted, they're, they're weak in their temptation here. And so he's addressing these people, and, and, and he's telling them, he's telling us to help the weak. He doesn't tell us to confront the weak, to shun the weak, to excommunicate the weak, to scold the weak. He tells us to help the weak. If you know your brother's wrestling with an immoral situation, your first line is to help your brother through it, not to confront him, not to admonish him, not to scold him or beat him down. You help the weak. So three different responses to three different kinds of church members. The idol are to be to, 
the idle are to be confronted, the faint-hearted are to be strengthened, the weak are to be aided, and we're all to be looking out for one another, not so that we can become big brother in the sense of being busybodied, sticking our nose in somebody else's business, but so that we can be big brother to say, buddy, I care about you, and I want you to grow, and I want you to have all that the Lord wants for you. That we care enough to engage about these important things of spiritual life. And rather than being the big brother who, who watches to, to get in their face, we are the big brother who watches over and protects our younger siblings. Verse, uh, where are we? 514, uh, encourage one another. In, in all of these cases, um, be patient with them all. You know, as freaky as it sounds to have somebody you know, watching over you, the Bible portrays this as being a real privilege, a real blessing of, of a healthy church. Elders have this, this uh, responsibility to be our big brothers, not the dictatorial, Orwellian, oppressive watching over you, but rather the playground big brother who's watching over and, and protects you. And, and, to, and to value these men that, that spend time praying for the flock and laboring in the teaching and studying diligently and preaching to you the word. And to those, we are told, verse 12, we're told, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Um, we shouldn't resent their involvement in our lives. Uh, we should cherish the, the fact that they care for us and they want us to mature. Just as you know, when a parent leaves an older brother in charge of the younger ones, there's an accountability placed on the older brother to be responsible for his siblings. There's also an equal expectation on the part of the siblings that they're going to respect their parents' authority by submitting to their older brother's authority, delegated authority. The author of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are watching over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. To a mature believer, to these Thessalonians, these are words of reassurance and comfort. They're not words of fear and suspicion. What a, a comfort to know that your big brother who loves you is watching over you in his, in his love. Let's pray. As a church, we do want to grow, and as individuals, we do want to grow, and we want to be um, all that you intend for us to be, and we recognize that for most of us, we are not all that we can be because of cherished sin and bad habits that we've kept to in our life. And if we are gonna grow and if we're gonna mature, it requires a big brother who's gonna hold our feet to the flame, who's gonna challenge us and encourage us and love us and guard us, protect us. And that's what we want to be for each other. First, the elders for the congregation, and then for each other as, as a family that we are watching over and fulfilling our jobs with each other so that we can all grow and mature and be more Christ-like and so that our witness can have its intended effect in this world and so that we don't just waste our life with our stupid amusements and we miss the potential that, Father God, you have made us to be. Thanks for giving us big brothers. Help us to 
grow through that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.